This morning we are in Romans. I get to read a single verse. I feel great about it. And I would love for you to join me. Romans 12, 12, my favorite number. All right. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Okay, good morning. Oh, man, I was told about these bright lights, and they're no joke. This is probably going to be helpful for me, because then I can just pretend you're all really happy to see me. Um, okay, oh, I heard a we are over here. Thank you. Uh, okay, yes, good morning. My name is Houston. I'm at the Vine uh, as a uh, church planning resident, pastoral resident, some kind of resident. Um, and so what I always say that means is that um, in some number of years, uh, three, four, ten years, uh, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, uh, we'll look to plant another church in Madison. Um, I hear Fitchburg's nice. Maybe we'll come out here. Um, no, probably maybe more on the north side, but we're talking through that and thinking through that. So this is just a season of kind of preparing and getting ready for that and also exploring pastoral ministry. And uh, I'm in school, um, like you heard. And uh, Married, very important piece of information there, married to my wonderful, beautiful wife, Kinsey, who's here, over here, and she's going to hate that I pointed her out. Um, she, uh, yes, we married five years this November, um, which feels like quite an accomplishment for her to put up with me for five years. She's a very patient and wonderful woman. Um, and yes, another very important piece of information is that I work at Starbucks um, part-time. Uh, when I'm not at the church. And uh, if you have never worked at a Starbucks for something like that, uh, I work with a lot of young people, a lot of Gen Zers, um, a lot of non-believer Gen Zers. And a really big thing for uh, non-believing Gen Z kids that I've learned so far is that they're really into uh, astrology of all things. Um, they're really into what's your sign, uh, what's your birthday, that kind of thing. And, you know, I'm this curmudgeonly old man to them. And so they ask me, you know, Houston, what's your sign? And I say, oh, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about that. And I do because, you know, I was a kid once too. But um, so they're like, well, what's your birthday? Where are you born? It's April 15th. It's like, oh, you're in Aries. And that is so Aries of you to say that. Um, there's such a big Aries energy coming off of you. And I said, I don't know what that means. Um, or the other day, I, I was working, me and another guy, and he's about my age, um, both around 30, and uh, working with a, a, a girl. She's like 19, straight out of high school, just the biggest Gen Z energy you've ever seen. And, and she was telling me that she got a new kitten. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's cute. How old, how old is your kitten? What's your kitten like? And she says, oh. He's a Gemini. And, and I, ju I just like, I remember just being like stopped where I was. And I looked to my friend who's like young 30s and I was like, did that piece of information she just give you mean anything to you either? She, and she's like, he's like two months old. What do, what do you not get about that? And, and for whatever reason, she thought that if she said, oh, he's a Gemini, that I would be like, oh, that your cat's got such big Gemini energy or something. I don't know. But I was just completely lost. Right? And my, my friend who, you know, 31, 30, he's also just completely lost. He's like, I have no idea what she's saying. Um, but it's interesting because, like, the longer that I work with these Gen Z kids, the more and more this kind of stuff comes up. You know, what's your son? 
rising or your moon in retrograde or literally don't even know. If this sounds like I'm making it up, it's what I hear every day, and I have no idea. So what I think is really interesting about this kind of stuff, about uh, this astrology and, and the kids being so into astrology, is that um, what I see is that these people are just so desperately looking for something. It's like they're so desperately looking for some sense of eternal and external, and they're looking for some sense of meaning outside of their lives, and they're looking for something to come along and, and tell them more about who they are and what they're like. But what I can't help but feel is that they're missing a lot of things along the way, um, not the least of which is things like um, hope, right, that comes from the things that we believe as Christians, or very relevant for us today, uh, community, right? Whatever your sign is doesn't really connect you to anybody else, uh, except maybe if you have the same sign, and then I guess you're the same type of person. Um, but, but really, there's just such an absence of hope and eternal hope, and really community that comes out of that. And so for me, when we talk about things like this, Romans 12, as believers, we get to come into this space and this time where these things that we believe matter for us, not just for who we are or what we're like, but they matter to us in the sense that they play into how we live our lives out and what we have to look forward to. And again, so important, and this is what this whole sermon series is about, right? It leads us into community with each other. And I think that's such a powerful idea. And so when we come to Romans 12, the, the question is, why Romans 12? And from what I hear for you guys, this is going to feel like a continuation of where you've been. You know, you've been in Romans for a while, right? Uh, at the Vine, we've been in Matthew for a long time, for a few years now. And so for us, this feels like a little bit of a whiplash, right? We're going middle of one book to the middle of another. Um, and so we had to talk about last year at the Vine, why are we here in Romans 12? And why are we doing this as a Madison Multiply sermon series? And what I think is really cool is that if we read all the way through Romans 12, we're going to get this beautiful picture and sense of community and what it looks like to do life together, what it looks like to be believers together. But very wisely, when they were um, processing through this sermon series, uh, realized that there's a lot in Romans 12. It's very dense. You get really overwhelmed with all the stuff there is to do in Romans 12. And so that's why we're coming at it one verse at a time, um, one small section at a time. And so, you know, we might be overwhelmed with how much Paul throws at the Romans to do and, and to live life and how to treat each other, and how to consider each other, and, and how our lives look in Christian community. And so we're going to approach this chapter, uh, this verse today, as just a small section. And, and of course, last week James was here preaching on verse 11, the one right before this. Um, and so yeah, we're just going to keep diving into to small pieces that we can chew on, think about. Um, and really what we're going to do is, in all these sermons, uh, is we're going to just Tease out, what are these three simple but very packed ideas have to do with the Christian life? What does it mean for us today, some 2,000 years after Paul wrote it? So today I'm going to be talking about Romans 
12, 12. So if you want to grab your Bibles, pull them up in Romans 12. Um, I'm going to read it, um, but I'm going to read it from a, a translation that we don't, probably are not used to. Maybe you are. Um, we're not used to it at the Vine uh, because I think it's really interesting. And we'll get to why we're using this translation just for this verse later. Um, and it'll make sense, I promise. But first, uh, just Romans 12, 12. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. So we got a, so- a short and sweet verse here. It's going to be nice and easy. Uh, it's going to be a tight hour, 30 minutes, I promise. Um, just kidding, I hope. Uh, and, and so we're going to see, of course, is there's three parts in this verse. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and devoted to prayer. And these are the three things we're going to talk about today. And so we're going to see by the end of our time together is that, first of all, we drop down into the middle of a train of thought. So we're going to track that train of thought, see how we got here. And then we're going to see that these three points, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and devoted to prayer, are all related. And third, we're going to see why these three things are such a big deal for the Christian community. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you in prayer and sit under your word. We just pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, through your word, and uh, that we, 2,000 plus, um, or 2,000 years removed from this letter being written, um, can still take away the wisdom and the truth that you have for us today, Lord. And we pray that the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. First things first, let's get back into the passage. Let's read the verse again. Don't yawn or blink. You might miss the verse. Don't get too distracted halfway through. It's a long one. 12-12. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. So the first thing we're going to see, especially in this translation that I'm using here, is that this verse is mostly not a sentence. And if we go back to grammar rules way back in elementary school, we'll remember that sentences need a few things to actually be sentences. Uh, First of all, they need a subject and a verb. And all the other fun stuff in a sentence, all the other exciting things are all like set dressing for those two pieces, the subject and a verb. And so here, when we read rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, we notice that we're, not, we're missing a subject, right? And, and technically, we're missing a verb too. And so now, please, you know, don't drift away just because I'm talking grammar. Uh, I know that not everybody gets pumped about grammar like I do, and that's because you're all normal people. Uh, but stick with me. This, is, this isn't significant. And it's significant because we have to remember that we're in the middle of a letter. And you guys know this because you've been in this letter. You've gone through this context, And so, when we pull out this section right here, we're coming in the middle of not just a letter, but a a train of thought, right? In the middle of a sentence. And so, uh, the way I think about this is, think about the last time you wrote a letter. And, uh, you know, when I prepped this, I I thought, well, this is the year 2021. Think about the last time you sent a text message. If someone read just that text, or worse, just a line from that text, 
out loud, no context, they might think that you're like some kind of a weirdo, right? They might think, who in the world, what are they even saying? But I'm sure, I believe you, that there was a lot of context to it that made a lot of sense. Um, the, the example that I use is we have the um, elders from our church of Justin Laurel um, who are leaving for Ecuador. And uh, Justin invited us over for dinner the other day. And I said, what can we bring? And he said, uh, bring your own BYOB 6 p.m. I, I said, if I just read just this text message out, it's like, hey, this is the most recent word from one of our elders, Justin, BYOB 6 p.m. You might have an idea. This guy's like, he likes to party or something, right? But in context, it was like a super normal, like a super normal uh, thing to say. And he's not a partier. He's a great guy. You should know that. Uh, but so what we see here is same idea. We're in the middle of a sentence. Feels a little out of place. Feels a little weird, a little uh, stilted in this translation. And so what we're going to do, what I'm going to do is we're going to just backtrack a little bit. Uh, and read a little more context for what gets us here. How do we get here to this sentence? And really, we want to understand how this sentence fits into Romans 12 as a whole, and uh, really the whole book of Romans. Um, And I'm not going to read, don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole book of Romans, or even all of Romans 12. We're just going to hit some highlights, some cliff notes. Um, First stop, Romans 12.1. This is why I suggest pull your Bible out. We're going to be bouncing around Romans 12 a little bit. So Romans 12, 1 through 2, there's two verses. I'm going to read these two verses, but I want you to pay attention uh, first to who Paul is talking to specifically in this section and uh, what his rationale is. So who he's talking to and why he's saying this. So it says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here in this verse, in these two verses, we have a what and a why. So first thing, who is he talking to? Now you guys know this, he's talking to the church in Rome, right? But specifically in this section, he's talking to brothers. I appeal to you, brothers. Uh, Some of your other translations are going to have really fun words like brethren or something like that. But the idea is Paul is talking to believers. He's talking to the believers in the church at Rome in the first century. And... uh, you guys know this, but the Romans, they were a messed up bunch. They dealt with things like division in the church and disagreement about how to handle really big things and uh, drawing lines about identity and all these kinds of things. And it's really lucky for us that we don't deal with these kinds of things anymore, right? And so Paul writes to these believers that he never met and only, you know, having heard what they were facing... Uh, but he has love for them, deep love for them. And so he writes, you know, the last 11 chapters that you guys probably teach me about because you've been in it for a while. And he's been showing them all the good things that Jesus has done for them and all the good things that God has done for them through Jesus and that Jesus has saved them. And specifically, that Jesus has saved them to bring them into a community together, a new family of God. 
And so it's after these 11 chapters of Paul showing the Roman church all the ways that God's been good to them and how he saved them and made them a new people that we read this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so for Paul, all the things that he spent the last 11 chapters unfolding, reminding his hearers of the ways that they've gone astray, of the ways that the world is so broken, and of the ways that God has been so good to them, and the ways that Jesus' death on the cross has both saved them and made them into a new family, all of these things mean something. All of these things point them to a way of life. They mean that because of these powerful things that God has done for us, and because of his rich mercies, we live in a certain way. He says that we should offer ourselves as living sacrifices. I mean, this is a huge idea. I mean, we don't have time today to delve into that, but I think that we have got a little shortcut. What does that mean, Paul, to offer yourself as a living sacrifice? And so he says, we have a little shortcut. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So then another good question, what does that mean? What does it mean to not be conformed, but to be transformed? Well, in verse 5 of chapter 12, Paul says this. Verse 5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So the idea is that because of what God has done for us, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we're both saved and we come together as one body, which is Bible talk, another way of saying that we're one family, one unit, one thing together. We belong to one another. We're, re- we're united. And much in the same way that a body, like an arm, belongs to the head, belongs to the leg, we all belong to each other. And so the question is, how do we live that out? What does it look like to be one body together? And well, that's what we're jumping into today. That's what this whole sermon series is about, is what does it look like to be one body? And last week you heard James talk about one part of how it looks like to be one body. And today we're going to talk about another way. And so these two sections that I just read, which again is really just one flow of thought, are the basis for our verse today. We're going to see over the course of this whole sermon series what it looks like to do life together and what it looks like to be a Christian community together. But it's important that we have the right order when we approach this subject, that we have the right order of events. It's important for us to see that the Christian life, these three things here, uh, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, these are good things, but they're not just good things we decide to do. We don't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to rejoice in hope today. We don't just wake up one morning and decide, I'm going to be fervent in zeal. We don't just wake up and decide, I'm going to be a good person today. No, the idea that Paul is getting at is that we all see the ways that God has been merciful to us, and that because of his rich mercies, we go then to live a certain way. And because of the deep love for which God has loved us, we then go and love 
our neighbors. Because Jesus has moved towards us in love and died in our place, sacrificed himself for us, we then move to treat each other in love and sacrifice. This is so important for us to see. The idea that God, we love because God first loved us, right? We treat each other lovingly because he's treated us so lovingly. And we rejoice in hope, persevere in tribulation, and devote ourselves to prayer, not because we're good, but because God is so good. So now that we've got the why, we talked about how we got here, we got the why. Let's jump back into the verse. We're going to break down each of these three sections. And the, the poor guys in the booth, I'm going to keep bouncing around, I'm sorry. Uh, we're going to break down each of these three sections of rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and devoted to prayer. So first things up, rejoicing in hope. And I love the word hope because I think it's something that we throw around a lot today. Um, before I got here, uh, Nate said, you feel good today? I said, I hope so. And, uh, or how often do we hear something like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Or, I hope the Bucks win the finals. Or, you know, like, I hope I don't fail my midterm. Or, man, I hope my bank account's not empty as I'm about to buy a sandwich. And we say hope, I mean, really, most of the time, we mean something like, I desire that this would happen. So instead of saying, you know, I hope it doesn't rain, what I'm really saying is, I'd really like the weather to bend to my will tomorrow, right? But Paul here, he says to be a people rejoicing in hope. And so for Paul, this word hope is not this weak form of hope that we're familiar with. Paul is not saying be rejoicing in the desires that you have, that things would turn out the way you like. No, for Paul and for the believer, the word hope is a strong word. It's a, an expectant word. It's a, it's a word charged with electricity. It's a word that in the biblical worldview is not just a simple wish or desire. It's something so much bigger. Hope is what we feel when we are sure that things will work out. Hope is not wanting or wishing. Hope is confidence. Hope is confidence in an outcome. And so I'm going to do this. I'm going to paint a a scene for us, a a hypothetical uh, scene, and we're going to spend a lot of time in this um, scene this morning. So imagine you're at the hospital. Your best friend has just gotten into a car accident, and it was bad. And at this point in time, they're asleep, and they're not waking up. And they've been asleep for like a day now. And you know that after their surgery, or sorry, after their accident, they go straight into the operating room, and they're met with the best surgeon in the state, the best in the country. And he has worked for hours to save your friend's life. And so after a few hours in the operating room, the the surgeon comes out, and he comes straight to you in the waiting room, and he says, the surgery went well, perfectly, better than expected. I guarantee you, your friend will make a full recovery. 
And so you, here you are, a couple hours after the surgery, in that waiting room, or day after the surgery, you're in the waiting room, your friend's still asleep, but the waiting is different. Right? You have, you have the guarantee of the best surgeon in the country. And he said, it went perfect. He'll make a full recovery. So what does it feel like in the meantime? What does it feel like while we're sitting and waiting for our friend to wake up? Yeah, you're still worried. You're still grieving in some sense. You're hurting for what's happened. But man, aren't you in a better place than you were before the surgery? You have hope now. And, and yes, mixed with the pain and the worry that you're experiencing, you have this level of joy that almost doesn't make sense here. I mean, it doesn't make sense, right? From an outsider's perspective, someone who doesn't know the story of what's happened, your friend's still asleep. I mean, they're probably still beat up, bruised, bandaged. They look worse for wear still. But you, you know better, right? You know that your friend's had a life-saving operation and that you have a guarantee that's so comforting and, again, somehow so joyful. And really, this is what we see in the Christian life, right? Remember what Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. Paul has drawn our attention to what Jesus has done on the cross for us, and he said that it changes the way that we live. And here he's reminded us that what Jesus did, dying on the cross in our place, and raising again that we might have hope for life, that is our source of hope. And friends, we have to remember this. We have to remember that the cross, the work that Jesus did, the, the gospel itself, is at the center of our whole lives. That this event that happened some 2,000 years ago has implications for us today. And not just for today, but for the future. We trust that Jesus' work on the cross was good and sufficient for us. And specifically, we trust that if we put our faith in Him, that He will save us. And that He's forever saved us. And so that translates to hope, right? Just like the story with our friend in the hospital, we're in this waiting time. We're in this space of waiting. But we're told by the Bible that we have the equivalent of the best surgeon in the country, in the world. Best surgeon in the world. And the Gospel tells us that the work that Jesus did has really healed us. That He has saved us. And that even though we're in this time of waiting where things maybe still look rough, we have hope that the day is coming when things will look fixed. Amen? And this, this is our hope, friends. This is our hope that, that what Jesus did in the past saves us in the present. And that in the future, we will experience the world remade. Everything will be made new. And yeah, things look bad now, right? But we know it's coming. We know that the good things are coming. And doesn't it make so much sense to rejoice in that hope? How good is it knowing that Jesus is returning? Every time we look out in the world, you can't turn on the news without seeing 
violence, injustice, people being oppressed, people oppressing, people hurting each other, a pandemic. You can't look out in the news without seeing suffering. We can't look around us without seeing our friends being hurt or hurting people. And how good is it to know that Jesus makes the specific promise that He will come again and that when He comes again, everything will be made new. Everything will be set right. And how can we not rejoice in this hope? And I think the answer is if you're like me, it's a little all too easy not to rejoice in this hope. It's so easy in day-to-day life not to think about this hope all the time. I work uh, at Starbucks, like I've shared. And uh, let me tell you, eight hours into a shift, after I've made a thousand lattes, and a customer comes angry, I will be honest, the first thought in my mind is not, well, I've got a hope in Jesus that this is going to be okay. No, it's, it's probably much less nice things than I'm thinking. And this is the problem that we face as humans, right? The Bible will call this forgetfulness. In the Old Testament, the Lord often calls His people to remember. Remember who He is. Remember what He's done. Remember Him. And and specifically, remember what that means for their daily life. And so I think Deuteronomy 6, 4-9 is a great example of this. It's going to be on the screen if you want to follow along. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see how much emphasis is put on remembering here. See, God knows that His people are a forgetful people. Thankfully, God knows I'm a forgetful person. And so, what are they to do? They're to take the words that he's given them, specifically in this passage, that first part, the hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, love the Lord your God. They're to take that, and they're to take those words, and they're to talk about them all the time. When they lay down, when they get up, when they go along the way, when they come home, when they're at dinner with friends, when they're out watching movies, put them on your doors, on your wall. You get it, right? It's like, really surround yourself with these words. The idea is that they're supposed to take these words and put them all around them. Soak their lives in this idea. The Lord wants His people to orbit around these words that He's given them. Orbit around these reminders of who He is and what that means for them and their identity. Because He knows that unless they're orbiting around it all the time, they're going to forget. And so here today, when we read Romans 12, we see Paul's telling us to be rejoicing in hope. 
We have to take these steps to orbit around hope. We have to put the gospel story, the story of Jesus, at the center of our whole lives. And so let's talk about the gospel when we're getting up and when we're lying down. Let's talk about the gospel when we're going out and we're coming home. When we've got friends over for dinner, let's get posters of the gospel on our walls, mementos of the gospel. Let's surround ourselves with these reminders of what God has done for us through Jesus. Let's saturate our lives with the gospel, with the story of Jesus coming and living the living perfect life, dying in our place, and rising again. And this story, this is the core of our identity as believers. We can't talk about it enough. And it's the source of our hope. And so let's keep reminding ourselves of this hope. Let's keep reminding ourselves of the story that we orbit around. And along the way, I'm convinced that we will experience that joy. If we're living in this story so much, if we're constantly reminded of the hope that we have, man, how could we not rejoice in view of that hope? And then one of the most important things about hope is that it leads to action. True hope changes how we live and how we act. And Paul is counting on that. He's counting on that with these next two points. And unfortunately, we know that in this time, this time in between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and between his return, that, man, things are not perfect yet. We know, like I said, there's still injustice in the world. They're still suffering. They're still hurting. And Paul, he assumes that. right? He assumes that that suffering is still going to be part of the story. And here, we're going to go back to the first verse, 12-12. What I want you to notice in this middle part, he says, persevering in tribulation. Now, Paul doesn't say, and if you're unlucky enough that bad things happen to you, really hold out. Or he doesn't say, man, if you're a jerk and people are mean back to you, you know, straighten up or whatever. No, no, no. He says, persevering in tribulation. He knows that it's coming. And if you've been alive for any period of time, you know that it's coming too, right? We know that people get sick. We know that people hurt others. We know that all of this is just par for the course. Not just in the Christian life, but in the human experience. And so, Paul tells us that this side of Jesus returning, the mark of a Christian in this area, is not that we don't suffer, but the mark of the Christian in this area is that we persevere in the tribulation. In fact, uh, this word, some of your Bibles will have something like be patient in suffering or affliction. Um, this one, or, or mine, one said like, you know, holding out, that kind of thing. This one says persevering. The, the translation that I like here is the word enduring. Enduring in tribulation or affliction. And I like it because, for me, it brings to mind two things. First, 
uh, when I think of enduring, I think of something hard. I think if someone asked me to be patient, like the ESV says, be patient, um, it feels like they're not really asking for a lot, right? I, at Starbucks, if somebody waits more than three minutes for a drink, we say, thank you for your patience. And I mean, is that really much patience? That's, you know, three minutes for a coffee, that's a pretty, I don't know. So, so for me, that's not really suffering, right? But when I think of endurance, I think of something hard. And man, life is hard, right? Paul's not pulling any punches here. Paul is acknowledging that life, that this time between Jesus' resurrection and ascension and his return, that broken people are breaking people and that hurt people are hurting people. And so when we face things like high school best friends cutting off communication or seeing people that we love do bad things to each other and hurt each other, Paul doesn't just say, oh, just be patient. I'll shrug it off. It's not a big deal. No, he says, endure. I know this hurts. I know this is hard. This sucks. Endure. And the second thing about enduring that I think is so important is that it implies an end. Remember back to the first part of the verse? The rejoicing and hope part? Well, Paul wants to see that we ought to endure the tribulations. And, and that word tribulations is just more Bible talk for afflictions, suffering, Paul wants us to endure suffering because we have hope that one day it will end. Friends, we cannot forget this hope that we are reminding ourselves of. This hope that in the gospel that we are orbiting around promises us that suffering will end. And if we really believe this thing, if we really have hope that Jesus will in fact return and make all things new, then we have a very powerful piece of information in the face of suffering, and that it's temporary. And I think that can be a loaded word sometimes when we talk about suffering. I mean, does it still suck? Yeah. Does it still hurt? Definitely. Does it mean that it's okay because it's temporary? No, absolutely not. But what it does mean is that we know that it will end. And we know that it will be made right. And while this doesn't change the fact that people around the world are suffering, that our friends are suffering and hurting each other, it does mean that we have hope that this suffering is not the eternal state. It's not the forever thing. That again, Jesus will come and then he will make it right one day. So here in the meantime, we endure. Because we're a people of hope, we are a people who endure. And man, because being a people of hope and being a people who endure is hard, we are a people who pray. And so as we round the corner here, approach the end, I promise, 
I'm going to talk about prayer. If you spend any time in the church, or any religious group, really, you've heard a lot of talk about prayer. We talk about praying and how important it is and how good it is. But the question is, why is prayer so important? And importantly, why are we talking about it today? What does prayer have to do with rejoicing in hope and enduring in suffering? And all, ultimately, the answer is everything, of course. It has everything to do with those things. Think, think back earlier to the, the story when we talked about hope earlier. Imagine slightly different outcome or course of events. Imagine the surgeon comes out of the operating room and he walks directly towards us. And for whatever reason, we turn away and walk away. Imagine he comes towards you to tell you he's stable, surgery went well, everything's great, but you decided you didn't want to talk to the surgeon. You've given up your chance on connecting to the one who just saved your friend's life. Well, how much hope do you have then? Or imagine you're sitting there in the hospital room. The day later, he's still asleep, still looks beat up. You're sweating, right? My friend's in a rough shape. He's still unconscious. You're freaking out because as far as you can tell, he doesn't look like he's going to make it. So imagine the surgeon's going by. He's doing rounds. I mean, this guy's so great. He's checking in all, all the patients. And he comes in. He sees you. Oh, I, I wanted to tell you, and for whatever reason, you duck out the door. You don't want to talk to this guy. Well, man... When the surgeon goes to explain to you that what your friend is experiencing, that when he's unconscious right now, is very normal, and that he's still healing and he'll still make a full recovery, you didn't hear that. And so now you're still in this space where freaking out because we have no idea if our friend's going to recover. How ready are you to endure that suffering of waiting? And all of this sounds extreme and dramatic right? And really, that's because it is. But man, don't we do the same thing when it comes to prayer? Don't I do the same thing when it comes to prayer? How good is my hope that Jesus is coming again if I don't pray to him and talk with him, and I don't ask him, King Jesus, please come soon? Or if I don't come to him and say, Lord, these are all the ways that I've fallen short today, and I still need your grace. Is it really hope if we don't care to talk to the one we hope in? Or think about those seasons of suffering. When we face that pain of life, when you know, people hurt us or the people we love, how can we endure? How can I endure if I don't pray to the one who has suffered in my place, my Lord Jesus, who knows suffering better than anybody. And prayer is so important in the Christian life because it's like our lifeblood. It's our lifeline. Prayer is an incredible gift that we've been given. And we recognize it is that. Prayer in the Christian life is like breathing. 
It's, it's like the sustaining motion of life. And I think it'd be really easy today, as we move towards a time of application, for me to just say something to you like, hey, you should pray more. And I mean, that's good advice. Like, we probably all could pray more. I'm sure there's nobody in this room who doesn't feel like they could spend more time in prayer. But no, I think the application this morning is actually very easy. It's very simple, at least. Maybe not easy, but very simple. Very straightforward. See, Paul's written it out for us. Our application today is to be a people rejoicing in hope. To be a people persevering in tribulation. And to be a people devoted to prayer. And so instead of a list of tasks for us to do as we come out of here, I want to paint a picture. I want us to see that the whole reason why we're talking about Romans 12 as a church planting network is that there is a beautiful image here that we can catch hold of and hopefully move towards. I want us to see a beautiful image of these things lived out because I believe that now we know what to do and we know why to do. And I think that seeing a beautiful image can really help encourage us to move towards it. And I think that we see that in Acts 2. We see in the very early days of the church, people are pumped. They're on fire. First part of Acts 2, we saw the Holy Spirit come down on the believers, and it's this incredible scene. And Peter, he preaches this bomb sermon, and the people are going nuts. I mean, they're coming to him, and they're like, oh, I want this Jesus that you've been talking about. I want to follow him, and I want to be a part of this community of people doing the same. And so we come to this passage, Acts 2, 42-47. It's going to be on the screen if you want to follow along. And we're going to see just a little picture, a little slice of life, a little aspirational direction to move in, what it looks like to follow Jesus. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Friends, this, is, this picture is a beautiful one, I think. It's a hopeful picture. It's a picture of people who are rejoicing and celebrating together. It's a picture of people who are banding together through these hard times. It's a picture of people who have devoted themselves to spending time together and eating together, sharing meals, reading the Bible together, and praying together. This is not some picture of a stuffy group of religious folk holed up in a house. This is a beautiful picture of love and community and sacrifice. This is a picture of a community of hope, endurance, and prayer. So then I say, family, let's pursue this. Let's rejoice in this hope. Let's endure in suffering. 
and let's devote ourselves to prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we know that what Jesus taught us in John, that he is the vine and we're the branches, that apart from him we can do nothing, but that if we abide in him, we'll bear much fruit. And Lord, we count on that today, that if we continue to abide in you and remember this hope that we have, rejoice in this hope, if we persevere in tribulation, if we devote ourselves to prayer, we trust that you'll show up. And more than that, Lord, we trust that these are good things and that we can do this only through the power of your Spirit, Lord. So we pray that you'd fill us with your Spirit, continue to grow in us, continue to transform us. We pray that we could be a people who look different to the world and who are exciting and appealing, and that we draw people to you, Lord. And that, uh, like the book of Acts said, that we could be such a joyful group that day by day, people would be added to our numbers. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.